0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. The coronavirus poses a grave threat to the integrity and security of the November presidential election. We saw a possible harbinger this week in Wisconsin, where there was the latest royal mess In the words of the National Task Force on Election Crises, we cannot allow November's general election to follow Wisconsin's example. Last-minute chaotic decision-making and failures in emergency planning are threatening the basic goal of a free and fair primary election, even as local election officials are working through unprecedented challenges. Like drinking and driving, the virus and elections don't mix. But unlike drinking and driving, they have to. Our civic life depends especially on an orderly presidential election and one that leaves no doubt as to legitimacy. As it turns out, an eminent nonpartisan group of national leaders have been focused on risks to the election since even before the virus. And their work has taken on new urgency and focus now that the virus has taken hold of our daily life. And that is the aforementioned National Task Force on Election Crises, which was launched last year with the mission statement of ensuring a free and fair 2020 presidential election by recommending responses to a range of potential election crises. And those threats have now virtually all coalesced into one in the public consciousness, the virus. So the task force comprises 47 prominent members from diverse fields, such as election law, national security, civil rights, and public health. And three of the most prominent members are with us today to discuss the range of threats that hang over the November election and the recommendations that the entire task force has endorsed. They are Jim Baker, the Director of National Security and Cybersecurity at the R Street Institute, a public policy research organization. Jim is also a former federal prosecutor, and from 2014 to 2017, he was the general counsel at the FBI. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, nice to be here. Mike Chertoff, the founder of the Chertoff Group, a risk management and security consulting company, and one of the country's most distinguished public servants with a long list of hugely vital jobs, including United States Attorney in New Jersey in the early 1990s when he and I met, Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division of the Department of Justice, Secretary of Homeland Security, and a United States Circuit Judge for the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Mike, thanks very much for being here today. Happy to be on. And finally, Vanita Gupta returns to Talking Feds. She is, as listeners to this program know, the president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. She was previously the principal deputy assistant attorney general and then the assistant attorney general of the Civil Rights Division at the U.S. Department of Justice, and before that, a prominent civil rights lawyer with the ACLU and the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. Welcome back, Vanita.
1: Great to be here again. Thank you. All
0: right. So, we have this incredibly power packed lineup for this discussion. So, let's just dive in. First, you know, it seems as if you guys were ahead of the game. Everyone would agree we're now in a crisis, but you formed last year under the name of Task Force on Election Crises. What caused you to come together initially? What crises did you see before the rest of us?
2: Well, let me begin. I mean, I think this was basically born out of the experience of the 2016 election. We saw the experience of the Russians using disinformation to attempt to affect turnout in the election. We've seen this uh, activity by the Russians and other adversary nations continuing and intensifying, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And that raised a lot of concerns about what might happen, particularly if you blended a disinformation campaign with some real-world event for example, an outbreak of violence or something of that sort like a Charlottesville. And we were also mindful that we've had some political figures who've been quick to accuse the process of being, quote, rigged. And so that would put a little bit of fuel on the fire if the Russians were starting to plant disinformation. So I think that was the the genesis of this. And when you all sort of first
0: convened and, and looked at a list of possible crises, was a pandemic even on the horizon?
1: We were looking at a whole range of different potential crises. I think a pandemic probably was not terribly high on the list because I don't think anyone foresaw the kind of situation we would be in here in 2020, but pandemic was among them that had been listed. We were fairly creative, both based on events as Mike Chertoff says around 2016, but also around the concerns of the kind of constant barrage of attacks on democratic institutions and basic fundamental democratic norms and rule of law principles that we have all been witnessing over the last several years that really brought us together out of a concern for any number of scenarios that could threaten the legitimacy of our democracy, the legitimacy of our elections. But again, I wouldn't say that any of us really had such a laser focus on pandemics per se. It just so happens here we are today with a very live, real crisis on our hands that is certainly threatening the 2020 election.
3: This is Jim Baker. Yeah, I was just going to jump in and just add that in addition to what has been mentioned before, especially the the disinformation efforts of the Russians, I think several of us, myself included, were concerned about some type of cyber incident that could either make it difficult for people to vote, to make it difficult for the votes to be tabulated, or somehow otherwise uh, affect uh, voting on, on that particular day, just given the world in which we live in and the number of malicious cyber actors that are out there. So I, th- I think we're just generally thinking about it, some combination of events that are both intentional by humans and perhaps some events dictated by Mother Nature. But it was a range of things that we were worried about. I think everybody was trying to think outside the box, really to help governmental officials be prepared really for anything. So I think that was the impetus of the uh, effort here.
2: As, As Jim points out, we were concerned about viruses. It's just a different kind of virus than we're dealing with right now. Can you elaborate, please, Mike? Well, I mean, I think we know there was, for example, hacking in 2016 in order to release certain documents. For some period of time now, people have been concerned about the possibility of attempting to interfere with the electoral process by hacking into databases, shutting them down, using ransomware. Uh, there's been some concern about affecting tabulation, although it's actually a little more difficult to affect the machines directly. But we saw in Ukraine a few years ago, hacking into television broadcasters to try to affect what they announced as the outcome of an election, because they thought that would create a sense of uncertainty if at the end of the day, the official tabulation came out differently.
0: So lucky for the country that you were up and constituted, it's not hard to surmise that really there wasn't a lot of advance planning in place. And a- another member of the task force, Norm Ornstein, had written an article I'm sure you had all seen ringing the alarm bell of the things that could happen, both acts of God, but also, as Mike, as you say, from the mischief of foreign actors whose goal would be to sow uncertainty and questions about legitimacy. Let's move quickly to Wisconsin, which happened a few days ago. And the task force, you guys said it, they raise serious concerns about the ability to secure free and fair elections through November. And we have to not allow the same thing to happen again. Fairly strong words for for a primary. So can you talk a little bit about what went wrong exactly and why? you as a group find it so alarming?
1: Well, I can just start by saying that I think it was absolutely egregious. And fundamentally un-American to put voters in the position of needing to choose between their lives and their ability to vote, and that is what the situation was on, you know, on Tuesday in Wisconsin. I don't think that that is exaggerating the position that Wisconsin voters were put in. You saw these images, and you saw them all over the media uh, of voters trying to kind of equip themselves with protective gear and masks, trying to exercise the right to vote, and you, as a result because of all of the last minute shenanigans and litigation leading into the Wisconsin election, voters were put in a terrible position and there was much lower voter turnout as a result. But I will say that in some ways, there's a real silver lining with what happened in Wisconsin, which is that it, woke the country up. There are seven months until the general election. The general election cannot be moved. And it is incumbent now on secretaries of state, local and state officials that are running their elections in every state in the country to get ready. And there are very key things. Congress needs to allocate $4 billion to allow for states to do this, regardless of whether they are headed by Republican or Democratic secretaries of state. Everyone is asking for this. And they need states to have a proper vote-by-mail regimes in place and safe in-person voting with expanded early voting to prevent lines, the kind of lines that you saw in Wisconsin. They need expanded online voter registration. They need a whole slew of CDC-compliant polling places and massive kind of placement of poll sites to prevent these long lines. There's a whole bunch of things that states can now do. But the reality, and I want to place this here in a certain context, which is the history of voter suppression in communities of color and people, voters with disabilities and the like has been long and storied. And the effort now to make sure that nothing is done to prevent eligible voters from being able to exercise their fundamentally American right to participate in their democracy, has to take place and we have to do everything we can to protect it. But Wisconsin was absolutely a wake-up call.
3: I mean, to me, governmental authorities have an obligation to protect both the voters and the vote, right? So they have to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the voters as they proceed to the polls or as they file their uh, absentee ballots or however it is that they end up voting. But governmental authorities have an obligation to protect those voters in the act of doing the voting, as well as protect voters from these misinformation slash disinformation campaigns that we talked about a minute ago from foreign actors who are trying to meddle in our in our elections. So, governmental authorities need they have a lot of responsibility at the federal, state, and local level. They have also have a lot of resources, but they need to make sure that those resources are dedicated correctly and properly to protect the voters. Those governmental authorities also have an obligation to protect the vote, as we've been talking about. And I'm thinking about that in terms of the registration to vote, they need to make sure that those voter registration rolls are protected from any type of mischief by anybody. They need to make sure that the votes themselves are collected in a timely and appropriate manner and protected. And then they need to make sure that the tabulation is done correctly and that the reports are, are done in an in an acceptable way so that there are no questions about the legitimacy of the election. And so every American who is eligible to vote has the opportunity to participate in a fair and uh, free election.
0: And I just want to add a gloss on what Vanita said and how this, like other voting problems, seems to hit especially hard and grievously in the, in the minority community. So 90% plus of the people who were poll workers, of course, were senior citizens. And they, they justifiably thought, mm, this is really not a very smart idea. So they were gone. That consolidated everything into five places, which, of course, aggravates the health risks And that was in a community already, especially the minority pockets of Milwaukee, that it had wildly disproportionate incidents of the virus relative to the rest of Wisconsin. All right. So we've blitzed through just in, in responding to Wisconsin, many of the main recommendations of the task force, though I'd like to double back to a couple of them. It seems to me that the really big ticket item, correct me if I'm wrong, is as a very strong shift to voting by mail. The task force says anyone who can vote by mail should do so. And obviously that would obviate any of the problems from the virus. It's a huge cultural shift, isn't it? I, there, The studies show that people who vote in person feel more confident, that their votes are being accurately counted.
2: It is ingrained in us, even from the time I was a child, that it was a big deal to go to the polling place and push the lever. Although I have to say the technology has changed quite a bit since then. When I vote, for example, we fill out a piece of paper and they scan it in. So it's kind of a combination of low-tech and high-tech. But I think in this instance, there are many things we can do, particularly if we take advantage of the time to create alternatives that people can choose to adopt one way or the other. I do think early voting by mail, very flexible requirements on absentee voting. New Hampshire apparently just announced that they're going to view fear of the virus as a disability. Yes, interesting. So you don't have to make any special finding. You just sort of say it. So you have that. There's also been a suggestion, you could have kind of drop by curbside voting, where you'd have in a number of different places in parking lots, official stands that people people could come and drop a sealed ballot, and it would be kept there and then ultimately become part of the camp. So With the time that we have, it is possible to put together a number of different alternatives that allow early voting, mail voting, curbside voting, and widely distributed voting that would address a lot of these concerns about the virus. Now, that does require that people pursue this in good faith and not trying to see a partisan advantage in keeping turnout down in certain locations. And here I would say, you know, the courts have been thrust into this rather precipitously and understandably there's a reluctance to create new doctrine in the middle of of an emergency but i'd suggest that let's go back to the one man one vote or one person one vote cases that go back over 50 years back to baker versus Carr and reynolds the idea was that you do have a right to have everybody's vote counted equally we don't count some votes more than others and while the gerrymandering issue is kind of a a separate issue I think you could have courts look at any maldistribution of voting places and say this is in effect disadvantaging certain populations or certain areas and perhaps intervene to prevent that. Now, that might be state courts under state law or it might be federal courts, but it's worth thinking through the legal arguments ahead of schedule.
0: I mean, it's a little to the side and legal, but it's but it, people are surprised to learn there actually isn't a right to vote in so many words in the Constitution. And a lot follows from that. We're at a so-called fundamental right, and everything Mike is talking about, any kind of inequality in it would be subject to strict scrutiny. But in fact, we find that there's a lot of legal monkeying with what seems to so many of us colloquially to be as cherished a right as there is an almost foundational of the others, and yet doesn't have the same constitutional grounding.
1: But the fight to preserve voting rights has been, as I said, a long and storied one. And I think the efforts around disinformation and Russian interference, but also domestic interference to interfere as a right to vote is really significant. I also, I think there's a cultural piece, Harry, that you're mentioning is real, and there has to be, it is going to be a monumental task for state election officials to be able to convert their existing systems into kind of rather different looking ones by November. And that's why time is really of the essence. It's not only gonna take a lot of work even to things like they need the money to put prepaid postage stamps to get the ballots printed, to get the mail to everyone. All of this stuff takes a lot of lead time, but also voter education. And you alluded to this, but the amount of work that it will take to actually educate voters to use this is a big deal. I will say the reason why for the civil rights community, there's been a real focus on ensuring though that we also preserve and make safer in-person voting by the kinds of things that Mike and I were talking about before, which is expanded online voter registration, expanded early voting. You need these things in part because there are, for example, in Arizona, 26% of Native American voters don't have a US postal address. So you don't wanna create a system that inadvertently disenfranchises a lot more people. Voters with disabilities are not able to have as open online access as other voters. And the Americans with Disabilities Act forced a whole new kind of vision for polling places that allowed for greater physical accessibility, but the online accessibility is not where it needs to be. You also have this cultural piece that you talked about. Older African-American voters have had a historical distrust with the post office. There have been surveys that have showed that. And so how you get people to kind of transform quickly in this moment, understanding the real dangers of COVID with ensuring that you're not also inadvertently disenfranchising folks is why states need options. And I will say that regardless of all of the bluster and noise that is coming out of Washington, Republican and Democratic secretaries of state are already beginning to make these changes because they have elections to run and they don't want to oversee rigged elections. They are concerned about disinformation. They are concerned about the ability to make sure that they can run a kind of a fair process. And frankly, I don't think any one of them wants a Wisconsin on their hands, but it is going to take sustained political will and a lot of public education to be able to have an election that is seen as legitimate because elections themselves don't define legitimacy. Um, You know, we can have election after election What is really required is the fundamental role of elections in many ways is really to establish that the state has the consent of the governed and that every eligible voter was equally able to exercise their right to vote. And right now, unless things, changes are made, that will be put in peril. But that's why this task force is important. It is lending that kind of bipartisan support to remove the intense. Kind of partisanship and polarization that has existed around voting and elections and to say like this is just this is fundamental to who we are as a nation and to our best values
0: that's a really important point okay it's time now for our sidebar segment we have the great fortune of having teller of penn and teller to discuss whether president trump could cancel the november election Penn and Teller, as most everyone knows, are the thinking person's magicians, or I think I should say performers, because for over 40 years together, they have insisted on reminding us there's no such thing as magic, only then to proceed to dazzle us with their great chops and brilliant reconceptions of magic sleights of hand. But wait a second, it tell me the guy who
4: doesn't say anything? Well, stick around. Can Trump cancel the November election? Hmm. As the coronavirus spreads, several states have postponed their primary elections. But if the virus is still prevalent in the fall or returns after the summer, can the president cancel or postpone the federal elections? No, the president cannot directly cancel the elections. The Constitution requires direct election of representatives and senators and states that Congress sets the time and place and manner of congressional elections. Federal law sets the congressional elections on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. This year, it's November 3rd. Only Congress can change this. The presidential election is slightly different. Remember, the president is chosen by electors. The Constitution requires only that each appoints electors in such a manner That the state legislature determines. For the last 150 years, every state has appointed its electors by holding an election. Federal law says this appointment happens on the same day as congressional elections. So, only Congress can change the date of congressional elections, and only the state legislatures can change the manner of selecting electors. But what if it becomes impossible to hold the election on November 3rd? Could Trump continue to be president then? No. The 20th Amendment states that the terms of president and vice president end at noon on January 20th. At 1201, January 20th, 2021, the current president and vice president's terms end, and individuals elected this year, even if that's Trump and Pence, begin their term. On January 3rd, 2021, the new Congress is sworn in. In the unlikely event that no state holds a federal election, there will be no representatives and no new senators sworn in on January 3rd. However, senators hold six-year terms, and 65 will continue their terms of office. 35 are Democrats, or caucus with the Democrats, and 30 are Republicans. The Senate president of this 65-person Senate would be Democratic leader Chuck Schumer, and the president pro tempore would be the longest-serving member Patrick Leahy. On January 6th, the electoral votes are counted by the president of the Senate. If an individual receives the majority of the electoral votes, he or she is elected. If no one receives a majority of the electoral votes, the House of Representatives picks the president from among the top three electoral vote-getters, and the Senate picks the vice president from among the top two electoral vote-getters. Since no state held a presidential election, no candidate would receive any electoral votes. There would be no names for the House and Senate to choose from, nor any representatives to vote. Without a qualifying president or vice president-elect, the Constitution directs Congress to determine the president. The Presidential Succession Act directs that the Speaker of the House shall become president. If there is no Speaker of the House, which there couldn't be since there would be no representatives, then the presidency devolves to president pro tempore of the Senate. Our scenario would therefore result in the first term of President Patrick Leahy. For Talking Feds, I'm Teller of Penn & Teller. Thank you very much, Teller, for going through that harrowing
0: possibility. The new season of Penn & Teller Fool Us will start again on June 22nd on the CW Network. For those of you who haven't seen Fool Us, it's really not to be missed. It's a fantastic concept where people from all over the world do their best, figure out their best, most creative trick, and come to Las Vegas, do it in front of a live audience, and try to fool Penn and Teller. And occasionally, not frequently, but occasionally, they do. Again, that will be starting up again on the CW Network on June 22nd. Okay, let's jump back in. I'd like to talk a little bit more about this disinformation point. Jim, you, you mentioned it a couple times, and that was also front and center when you first got together. Can you just elaborate a little about what the risks are, where it's coming from, what you're most concerned about when it comes to voting and the virus, and as well as how you're recommending election officials try to respond to a pretty tricky, amorphous problem?
3: Sure. So when I was at the FBI, our job was to try to figure out what the Russians in particular in that instance were doing. And it was particularly challenging. And I would, I would tell you that I think we had a failure of imagination with respect to understanding exactly what the capabilities were of the Russians uh, that were eventually articulated in the uh, indictments that special counsel Mueller brought, which showed a much deeper level of understanding of how American politics and American society works that the Russians had than I think that we estimated that they had.
0: So you're talking
3: specifically about
0: 2016?
3: I'm talking about 2016. Yeah, the Russians, I think it turned out to be way more capable, both in terms of their techniques and their strategy, in terms of understanding American politics, understanding American society, and understanding how to manipulate it. And so they're they're very sophisticated, is what I'm trying to say. And so I would expect that they would try to do the same in 2020, perhaps in ways that are more subtle less likely to be detected, but I think they would try to find ways to be as effective building on and playing off of pre-existing, you know, underlying issues and tensions in American society, right? They're not, even in 2016, they weren't necessarily like making up things that we weren't already worked up about, but they were trying to play with them. They were trying to manipulate them. They were trying to exaggerate them in, in certain ways. And so I would expect that they would try to do that in this environment as well, in order to make the united states look less appealing around the world to make our democracy look less like a beacon uh, to people around the world to to call into question our constitutional republic right so i think that's what that's what their goal is so in the current environment they have a lot to work with in terms of Sowing confusion as we get closer to the election about what the rules are in different locations, with the impact of coronavirus and the safety of how people can go to vote, and fomenting things, especially on social media, to make people fearful about voting, to make them confused about how to, I don't know, exercise uh, absentee ballots, uh, mail-in ballots, uh, those kinds of things, to undermine the legitimacy of the ele- of the election, the thing that the the task force is exactly focused on. So I, you know, I don't know. In- can't exactly predict what the what the Russians will try to do, but I will expect they will try to do something along those lines. And it's the obligation of the government working with many partners in private industry, especially the social media slash tech companies to get to the bottom of what they're doing and thwart those efforts. So that's sort of a a quick overview of how I think about that problem.
2: And I think it's not just the Russians. The Chinese have also gotten more aggressive, in fact, recently with respect to the virus, in pushing out their version of how wonderfully they dealt with the coronavirus, which is, of course, not true. But again, it's part of an ongoing campaign. I'd add a couple of things to what, what Jim says. One is that to emphasize, in many ways, the Russians are planting seeds in soil that already has been prepared. There are various kinds of nutty theories going around in the United States and other Western countries, and much of what the Russians do is they don't fabricate out of whole cloth, but they simply exaggerate and then turn viral these kinds of conspiracy theories or attitudes in order to propagate them. And I think more and more what we've seen recently is less of the clumsy people sitting in St. Petersburg bombarding the internet with stories, and more planting seeds on the part of people in the U.S. who might have somewhat extreme views, and then using that as a way to go viral and to amplify. The second thing i point out is this. The real name of the game here for the Russians is not changing a vote from A to B. I don't think they think they're going to persuade people to switch from one candidate to another. It's about turnout, which ties back to our earlier point. If they can depress turnout for the candidate that they don't like, that effectively gives the election to the other person. And that's why an awful lot of what they do is designed to show dissatisfaction. And I think when you look at the hacks into the Democratic National Committee a few years ago, that was designed to discourage Democratic voters from voting for Hillary Clinton by getting to be disgusted with the DNC. So I think we're going to see more of that as we go on. Finally, whatever the outcome of the election I could see Russian disinformation claiming that there were irregularities with vote tabulation, vote counting, and vote reporting. Because at the end of the day, if they can cause a significant number of people to believe it was a rigged election, that's a win for Russia as well. And so our group is looking not just at the process of getting people to vote, but how do we assure the legitimacy of the outcome and the credibility with the American public?
1: I wanted to put a finer point, too, on what Jim and Mike's uh, really good comments here, because I think the other piece of this Mike alluded to is that it isn't just Russian actors here. So increasingly, these are the Russians are kind of preying on the vulnerabilities in the United States and the openings that they have. But there's now a lot of domestic actors that are also using disinformation. To basically get people to sit it out to chill participation, and there 's been a an intensive both Russian involved and domestic involved kind of racialized disinformation campaign in two thousand and sixteen you know direct evidence in both the House and Senate Intel reports that black voters were targeted in key parts of the country to basically sit it out in two thousand and sixteen and that we, we had recent reports in new York Times and Facebook actually did their own investigations, tracking down international hotspots that are, again, using racialized disinformation to try to do the same thing in 2020 and working with also domestic organizations to help propagate this. This is all going to hurt and affect the legitimacy of the election. And when you have COVID, which is already making people afraid, you can have disinformation that is very targeted and it can be perpetrated, by the way, by politics domestically as well, that says, oh, you know what, on November second, you have somebody in official position that says Detroit and Milwaukee, there's a seeing a surge of COVID, stay home, and have geographically targeted, and really, we all know, racially targeted acts that make people sit at home out of fear. So this is the added complication. It wasn't like we weren't already dealing with these intense threats. But now with COVID, there's just this whole other front that we have to be paying attention to.
3: In terms of what Bonilla was just saying, the targeted nature of it, in order to be effective, the Russians or anybody else, in order to be effective from their perspective in sowing confusion and and drawing into question the legitimacy of the election, they don't have to be conducting a nationwide effort. They don't have to be successful across the whole United States. They are smart enough to try to pick the key battleground states counties, precincts, even to that level, where they want to try to have an impact, where they think the outcome of the election might be affected if they can flip the vote one way or another. So I think they're sophisticated enough to understand that and uh, and will try to target things exactly as Vanita was suggesting just a minute ago.
0: That's a great point. Well so you've defined a kind of a dual goal on their part and maybe the part of the Chinese and other other mischief makers who are out there one is to generally sow uncertainty undermine legitimacy try to erode the extent to which the US is seen as the you know rock solid beacon of democracy in the world but then second a preferred candidate who at least in 2016 was Trump and presumably is again so How much of this would you say is Trump driven in your mind? I I know that group is nonpartisan, and I don't mean to solicit kind of views about him, but he's been the kind of leader who seems to thrive on and even create crisis and chaos. He certainly, I think it's fair to say, has authoritarian tendencies. I mean, as part of the mission to have a kind of clear eyed view of the particular risk The country may face with him in the Oval
3: Office? No, this is not intended to specifically address the president. This is intended to address what we see in society as an increasing level of concern in various quarters about whether our elections are legitimate. I'll just speak for myself, as someone who cares deeply, obviously, about the country and devoted my career to trying to protect it, I just am concerned that there are too many questions. Look, there are always problems, I think, in elections. If you go to precincts and different counties and sometimes states, there are issues, there are problems, there are challenges that have to be addressed. But they have never risen to the level that there would be a serious question about the legitimacy of the election. And just given what happened in 2016 and the number of questions that were raised about a rigged election, about who's voting and what's happening and the activities of various actors external to the process. It seemed to me to be incumbent upon everybody who cares deeply about this process from any side of the uh, ideological uh, perspective to commit to making sure that we can do everything that we can to make sure that, again, it's a fair, free, and legitimate election. So I just, I think people are concerned and we're concerned about what happened in 2016, but we have tried to make this a nonpartisan effort to try to ensure the constitution and the processes that it dictates are are protected.
2: Yeah. I want to echo that. I think Jim's right. We're, we we are bipartisan here. Do you know that we live in a hyper uh, partisan environment where people in both parties there'll be some people who view politics as a contact sport where you win at any cost. And uh, for people who are willing to do that and bend the rules and bend the norms, this kind of uncertainty can be essentially weaponized and made into a way not just to affect the election, but to affect the legitimacy of whoever emerges as the winner. It's a little bit quaint to reflect back about 20 years ago to Bush versus Gore. And whatever you think about the Supreme Court decision in that case, there was a moment where Al Gore said, you know what, I'm going to stop because for the good of the country, I'm not going to keep fighting this endlessly. And it's hard to imagine that spirit of putting country first in this day and age. Now, the one maybe blessing out of the virus is as people begin to see we're all in it together, the virus afflicts, we're Republicans and Democrats, there may be a sense among the populace that we need to come together and put aside some of the squabbling. I mean, I remember on September 11th, Jim will remember this too. You know, I lived through the 90s, and there was a lot of political squabbling over the Clinton administration. And all of a sudden, on September 11, 2001, people woke up and said, my God, we got more important things to worry about. We better get united and moving. And so maybe I'm being a Pollyanna, but I hope that spirit takes root as a consequence of this virus.
1: You know, I um, I don't want to crush the Pollyanna, because I I don't think it's Pollyanna. I think it is part of the spirit that animated all of us to come to the table. But I think that for some of us, at least, there was an added dimension of concern around the kind of battering of, as I said, fundamental democratic norms in the last several years under the Trump administration, and I will just name that, I think has been a concern around the willingness to sow disinformation and to not be truthful to the American public in a way that undermines legitimacy of our democratic institutions. And it wasn't the only thing that animated us coming to the table as all of these other things that we've been talking about did too. But I think we can't deny that we are in a dangerous place in this country right now with the kinds of degrading of law enforcement, of the independence of the Justice Department, of accusations against federal judges. We are in a very polarized time, but we are also in a time where it does feel like there is a kind of growing stretch towards authoritarianism that could be very dangerous. And we may think, well, we are the United States of America. This will never happen on our soil. But we can also be part of the boiling of the frog. And there have been there has been a lot of attacks on democratic norms and institutions. Uh, and so I just don't think that we can total we can not deny the kind of current political climate and polarization, but also official actors that seem intent on weaponizing confusion and all of these other things that really put our democracy at risk right now.
0: Okay, I just wanted to close with a few with, with just some observations about what kind of purchase are your recommendations getting? Uh, it's first of all, I want to reiterate how lucky for the country you guys are on the job and so eminent and nonpartisan and the like. But where are you sort of plying your recommendations? and are people receptive to them? Do you find governments acting concretely? in response to them? Does any of that break down along political lines? Just, uh, I'd like to close with a few thoughts about, you know, how it's going as a practical
3: project. I mean, I think, as Vanita said a few minutes ago, that I think we are getting much more traction now in light of the coronavirus and what happened just the other day in Wisconsin. I think many Americans are legitimately concerned about what happened and see that the events that transpired there are unacceptable. Look, we're going to continue to try to talk to anybody that we can in, you know, in the media, on podcasts like this, I think with government officials at the, the federal and state levels to make sure that they are doing what they should be doing in terms of their duty to the voters of their particular jurisdictions. And I think also trying to put pressure on Congress to make sure that federal funds are available to assist the states in this time of economic, financial, and and public health crisis, that there are funds available to, to enable states to come up with new ideas, come up with new practices and procedures to make sure that people are able to vote in creative and yet responsible and acceptable ways with respect to absentee ballots, ballots by mail, voting early, all these different types of things that, we, that we've talked about. So I think, you know, we're going to look for every opportunity to talk and make sure that government officials keep this issue front and center so that they are actually prepared for November 3rd.
2: Yeah, and I do think state and local officials who are involved, you know, on the ground, so to speak, are really a key audience here. And look, As I said, look what happened in New Hampshire. Uh, that's a Republican governor and Republican officials, and yet they're prepared to expand concept of absentee voting by considering a fear of the virus as being a disability. So, but this requires, you know, all hands on deck, and it's got to be immediate. it's got to be civil society, it's got to be government actors. it's got to be the party, because what we're really talking about here is the foundation of consent, which is the basis of our faith in our government.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I am heartened just to be in this conversation with Jim Baker and Michael Chertoff. There probably weren't that many venues that would bring us together before, but here we are. And I think it is because we are all very concerned about the current conditions. And obviously, COVID has made it that much more challenging. But to be able to come together out of concern to protect the legitimacy of our democracy, I think is a really amazing thing. I will say we've got, you know, on top of all of the reforms that we've been talking about, we also need to make sure that our media, as Mike said, is prepared because we may not have the election results that night and with if we do vote by mail uh, and a lot of voters vote that way we have to fundamentally change also our culture around how we are wanting always the breaking news and to be able to announce the results this is going to require a culture shift as we've been talking about but I think there's culture shifting happening right here in this by the fact that you're having this conversation earlier this week I did a conversation with Secretary of State Kim Wyman, Republican out of Washington, where we were just totally aligned as we are here about what is needed to protect the election before November. So. There are always challenges to elections, but I would say in 2020, this is a very high stakes moment and the country is is undergoing unprecedented challenges right now, but it is that much more incumbent for all of us who really do care about the fundamentals of our democracy to to roll our sleeves up and to leave nothing on the table in our effort to protect it.
0: Jim, Mike, Vanita, thank you so much for coming together on this venue and Godspeed to you between now and November in your vital work. Thanks again to Jim, Mike and Venita. And thank you very much listeners for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds related content. And you can also check us out on the web, talkingfeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts, or on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters to thank them for paying $5 a month to help us pay for the podcast. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Limos, and Rebecca Lopatin. This episode edited by Justin Wright. David Lieberman, Rosie Phillips, and Sam Trachtenberg are our contributing writers, production assistants by Sarah Philippoum. Thanks very much to Teller for breaking his decades of silence to explain what could happen if President Trump tried to cancel the November election. Our gratitude as always to the amazing Philip Glass who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman, see you next time.